0: All right, watch you guys open up your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We will get going. All right, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you, Lord, that we once again can be in this place where we can. Read your word where we can study, where you can speak to each of our hearts individually. And, uh, Father, there's a lot of stuff going on within this little church, just with families and different things that are happening. And uh, I just pray right now that this would be a place where, you know, again, we we sense your nearness to us, uh, that we can sense that you're speaking directly to our hearts, that you're making sense of some of these things that are happening in our lives, in this world. And uh, I just pray that you please bless this time, Lord. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and give us the ability to hear you, to understand your word, and to grow from it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, you know, we read the letter to the church in Sardis, which was the dead church. Um, The key verse we found in the first verse of chapter 3, which was where Jesus said to them, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, But you are dead. I called that the dead man walking church. You know, at at that moment, they were walking and they looked like they're alive. But the truth was, their days were numbered. Because the things they were doing was leading to death. If you remember, the three things that he told them to do was to, first of all, remember. Then it was to hold fast to the things that were true. And then repent. Turn from those things. That was the directive that he gave so that they could strengthen the things that remained and that they would survive. And it's good things for us, too, to remember. You know, when, uh, when we're going through a time of maybe that spiritual place where you feel like you're dying spiritually, well, start by remembering. Remember. Hold fast to the truth that you know. Hold fast to it. Don't let anybody steal that from you. And repent. Repent. Repent from the things that are leading towards spiritual death. Turn from those things. Walk away. This week we're going to talk, we're going to read the letter to the church in Philadelphia. It's where we get, uh, you know, the city of brotherly love. That's where that comes from, okay? is That's what it means is brotherly love. This is what many refer to as the faithful church. It was the faithful church. It's the only other church besides the letter to Smyrna Where the Lord offers not a single rebuke to this church in these letters. Let's read what he what he spoke to them in Revelation chapter three, beginning in verse seven, it says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, once again, you know, we're reminded subtly that God's view of what makes a church successful is often not what we would expect. You know, in verse 8, we can see that the church of Philadelphia was a relatively small church, they didn't have a big footprint. They weren't something that people looked at and said, wow, look at that thriving ministry. He very much told them they were obviously not very powerful because he said, for you have a little strength, very small. I believe that that's why the Lord began his letter to them in the way that he did. You know, when you read that first verse again, in verse 7 it says, and to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, these things says, he who is holy... He who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I believe he introduced himself that way once again in this letter to remind them of some very important things. The one who was speaking to them, the one who held them in his hand, the churches, this is the one, first of all, that is holy. This is the one who is holy. This is the one who is 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 true regardless of the things they were hearing and the lies they were speaking. And this is the one who has the key of David. It was a strong reminder to that church that truly, even though they only had a little bit of strength, he reminds them, first of all, that he is holy and true. When you think of true, first of all, in this sense, it speaks of him being the real deal. It's not fake. He's not a counterfeit. That's important for a church that's in the particular dilemma that they're in, in the circumstance, because they were surrounded by idolatry. They were surrounded by false belief systems. And he says, I am the one who is true. I'm not fake. I'm not a counterfeit. I'm true. I'm the one who is holy, the ultimate one who is set apart. It speaks of his purity, his total consecration to God. I'm holy. I'm separate from these things. I'm not like the other false gods that you see in this area. And if anything, they certainly were not holy with all the types of idolatries that they had to go on, and most idolatry includes sexual sin. So there was clearly a holiness factor that he had, which they did not have. This must have been a great encouragement to them as they were surrounded by all those false gods that they could clearly see in contrast and say, clearly these are not holy nor true. They're powerless to help these people. But he also says, I'm the one who has the key of David. Now, this is in regards to a messianic promise that was given in Isaiah 22:22, And I don't have it for the screen, but I'll read it to you. It says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. And what he closes, no one can open. It's a direct reference to that verse. He identified himself as the one who holds the key to the house of David. I believe this was important for them to hear because, as we've already read, they were being attacked by the fake Jews, the ones who claimed to be Jews, but really they were worshiping in the synagogue of Satan. They were serving the wrong one. No doubt they were claiming that these Christians were deceived by this false Messiah, Jesus. No doubt they were telling them, you know, you have turned against God. You're worshiping the wrong Messiah. Imagine all the lies that they were being told. So not only did they have the Gentiles which were bringing oppression and persecution against them, but you had the Jews, these fake Jews that were telling him these things as well. And he says, I am the one who holds the key of David. And he goes right back to this verse and says, that was about me. The very word of God that you would regard as holy, this is in reference to me. It reminded me of all the other false religions of today that have a wrong understanding of Jesus. And we're going to go through that today, a little bit different than what we've, we've done in the past. But I believe it's important for you to understand some core differences of other religions without getting too in-depth. You know, according to Christianity, cults, and religions from Rose Publishing, I, I was in an airport recently. I think when we were in Arizona, it was. And it was in one of their conveniences stores. I walked in, and they had this amazing compilation of Roses Publishing of all their different things. And if you've never used it, it's a super helpful resource. Little pamphlets that they put together. And it's just really concise, and it's really easy to use. Well, it was a book just full of them. I was like, I don't care what this costs. I have to have this. I have to have this. And sure enough, I haven't used it since I've gotten it. But... uh, (laughs) But as I was sitting there, I looked over as I was studying upstairs and I saw that book. I'm like, I wonder if they have anything in Revelation. And sure enough, as I'm thumbing through it, I find this. And I'm like, oh, this is good stuff because this is the truth. We are living in a day and age where people have wrong beliefs about Jesus and they're deceiving people. So I'm going to take just what they have. I copy and pasted it. And I think it's a good resource. So the first thing is Jehovah's Witnesses. They were founded in 1879, is when they were officially founded. And what their core beliefs are is that Jesus, and this is all about Jesus, okay? There's other things, but this is about Jesus, is what we're going to focus on. Who do they say Jesus is? Jesus is not God. Before he lived on the earth, he was Michael the archangel. Jehovah made the universe through him. On earth, he was a man who lived a perfect life. After dying on a stake, not a cross, he was resurrected as a spirit. His body was destroyed. Jesus is not coming again. He returned invisibly in 1914 in spirit. And very soon, he and the angels will destroy all the non-Jehovah's Witnesses. That's why their literature is always talking about those things, about end times. It's always talking about the wrath that's coming. Because they believe that everybody who is not a Jehovah's Witness will be destroyed. Okay, But they have a very wrong understanding of Jesus on who he is. The Mormons, LDS, Latter-day Saints. Now, this is, this is getting super tricky. I don't know if you picked up on this. But, but when you talk to a Mormon, number one, they do not refer to themselves as Mormons anymore. That has changed. They refer to themselves as LDS. They don't even say Latter-day Saints. Here's something that they say most often I found recently. I am a Christian. That's what they say. I am a Christian. And then when you dig a little bit deeper, you find out, whoa, yeah, you're a Mormon. You're not a Christian. But they identify as a Christian now. They say that. But you need to understand what they believe about Jesus. You need to understand that. Great people, no doubt, most of the time are great people but they have a wrong understanding about Jesus. They were founded in 1830. And as we read there, it says, Jesus is a separate God from the Father, which is Elohim. He was created as a spirit child by the Father and Mother in heaven. And he is the elder brother of all men and spirit beings. His body was created through through a sexual union between Elohim and Mary, a physical relationship. Jesus was married. His death on the cross does not provide full full atonement for all sin, but does provide everyone with the resurrection. They have a very, very, very wrong understanding. We can go on and on and on about some of their core beliefs that they do not advertise, but they are off, they are wrong. But most importantly, they are wrong about Jesus. Not just that he's the brother of Lucifer, which is not even in here, but they have some very, very wrong understandings about who Jesus is, and they are teaching people these things, millions of people these things. Christian science. That began in about 1875. Jesus was not the Christ, but a man who displayed the Christ idea. Christ means perfection, not a person. Jesus was not God, and God can never become a man or flesh. He did not suffer and could not suffer for sins. He did not die on the cross. He was not resurrected physically, and He will not literally come back. And yet they call themselves Christian science. But these are their beliefs about Jesus. Hinduism, somewhere around 1800 to 1000 BC. It's a very old religion, one of the oldest. says, Jesus Christ is a teacher, a guru, or an avatar. An incarnation of Vishnu, one of their millions of gods. He is a son of God, as are others. His death does not atone for sins, and he did not rise from the dead. Once again... They acknowledge Jesus, it's a different Jesus. New Age, somewhere really became popular in the 80s and 90s. Jesus is not the one true God. He is not a savior, but a spiritual model and guru, and is now an ascended master. He was a New Ager who tapped into the divine power in the same way that anyone can. Many believe he went to East India or Tibet and learned mystical truths. He did not physically, he did not rise physically, but rose into a higher spiritual realm. That's New Age beliefs, and that's, it's very diverse. They have different slants on this, but these are the core tenets of what they usually hold to. Islam. Again, very, very old world religion, 570 A.D., somewhere around that time they believe. Jesus, Esau, in Arabic. Arabic. Arabic, I'm sorry. It's one of the most respected of over 124,000 prophets sent by Allah. Jesus was sinless, born of a virgin and a great miracle worker, but not the Son of God. His virgin birth is like Adam's creation. Jesus is not God, and God is not Jesus. He was not crucified. Jesus and Muhammad will return for a special role. I'm sorry, Jesus, not Muhammad, will return for a special role before the future Judgment Day, perhaps turning Christians to Islam. All of these false religions acknowledge Jesus. All of them do, in one way or another. But they empty Him of all of His attributes that can lead a person to eternal salvation. It's an important distinction. They remove the things about Jesus that leads to, when you place your faith in Jesus, they empty Him of those attributes which are necessary to believe about Jesus. All of them can say we believe in Jesus, but they've emptied Him of what's necessary to understand about Jesus. They offer a different Jesus At best, a shell of Jesus, who he really is. And then they fill him with whatever they want. So in other words, it's not enough to just believe in Jesus' existence, as all of these false religions do. They all claim to believe in his existence. It's what you believe about him that will determine your eternity. It's what you believe about Jesus as a non believer, I used to tell people I believe in Jesus. I had heard about him. I went to church when I was a kid. I would tell people, I believe in Jesus. As if stating that was going to somehow keep me out of hell. That's why I said it. Why most people did. I believe in Jesus. You said that because you were hoping. If I say that, well, then if I do end up standing before him, I can say, I said that I believe in you. See, I was right. You do exist. I was mistaken. I now know that what you believe in Jesus about Jesus will make all the difference for eternity. You know, in Matthew, this passage here, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. He says, who do you say I am? He didn't say, do you believe that I exist? He says, who do you say I am? It's important for your JW friends and your LDS friends and, you know, your Christian science friends and all these people. The question is, who do you say Jesus is? That's the thing we need to get to. Not if you believe he existed. Not if you believe he was a prophet. Not if you admit that he was born of a a virgin, as they do in Islam. Who do you say he is? Because I'll tell you who Jesus said he was. In John chapter 14, 6, he said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You better have the right Jesus. You better have the right Jesus. Because if you have the wrong one, even if you say you sincerely believe in that wrong one, you are deceived and it is an eternal deception that will lead you to hell. You have to have the right Jesus. We know that Jesus is exactly who the Bible claims he is. We know he is. And as a church, I think it's important that you understand our statement of faith concerning Him. This is what it is. We believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We believe in His virgin birth, sinless life, miracles and teachings, His substitutionary atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension into heaven, perpetual intercession for His people and the personal, visible return to earth. I thought of all that myself. No, I didn't. I copy and pasted it because I read it and I was like, that, I agree with everything that is said there. It's important to understand who Jesus is. It's important to understand who people say they are following. Just because you call yourself a Christian does not mean that you're following the right Jesus. You have to know who they claim He is. Because we believe these things about Him, we also believe him when He says that He alone is the one who opens doors that no one else can shut. And he alone is the one who shuts doors that no one else is able to open, as he claimed to this church. That's why verse 8 is so important. In verse 8 it says, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I, he says, who am holy. I, who am true. I, the one that holds the key of David, the entrance into heaven, the one you were looking for, the Messiah, that's me. I'm that person. And I say to you as a church, I have set before you an open door. He has the authority to open doors. He has the authority to close doors. And no one can interfere with that. No one. Not Satan. Not other people. No one. He says, if I open the door, it is opened. No matter how small or insignificant that church may have felt, he tells them that door is open. And all they had to do was walk through it. He says, I've opened the door for you. No matter how powerless you feel, nobody can shut this door. I have placed it before you, opened. Really, the key is, for any church is, has Jesus opened the door? It's not necessarily, you know, he's writing to a small church here. It's not how vibrant or big or how many people are walking through the door. The question is, has Jesus opened the door? That's the question that has to be determined. Did Jesus open the door? He says, this church of Philadelphia, you have a little strength. You're you're a little powerful. But I have opened a door for you. Why did Jesus decide to place that open door before that little church? Three things that he says. For they only had a little strength. He says, You only have a little strength. They kept his word, and they had not denied him. Those were the three reasons he says, I have placed this open door before you, because you have a little strength. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make him, oh, you're stronger than you think you are. He says, no, you really have a little strength. But you've kept my word. And you have not denied me. I started thinking about it. God is not like the NBA, the NFL, or the Major League Baseball. The current trend within professional sports is, you build super teams. That's just the way it's done. mid trades, right before the playoffs, it doesn't matter. You acquire the pieces you need. I wish Jose was here today because I would mock him about the Rams because of this. They bought their Super Bowl, you know, but so did the Buccaneers the year before that. Uh, there's very few teams that, that just are good teams. I, I happen to think the Patriots were very much that, that just... Made their team very good over many years. We'll discuss it later if you disagree. But they were one of those teams. Yes, they had Tom Brady, but he was nothing when he started. And they just developed players and players and players and became that dynasty. But now the current trend is, hey, let's put LeBron over here. And then we'll add this person, and we'll add this person, and let's put this person over here. We'll add this person, and we'll add this person. We live in a whole generation now where that's just the way you get things done. If you want to win a game... You you buy people who have great strengths and you put them in positions to succeed so that you can win the game. That's the way the game is played. And if you don't do that, you're not going to win the games. You're not going to the championship. You don't have the right pieces in place. It's in college sports too, right? The recruiters. Come on, Nick Saban is successful for a reason because he can choose. They recruit people, they want to play for that. And they get the top players. It's just the way things work. Jesus isn't like that at all. The Lord's not like that at all. As a matter of fact, he's completely counter to that. He doesn't, he doesn't acquire the mighty only to capitalize off of their strengths. He doesn't say, well, this girl or this man are, are so strong as speakers or they're influential or they've got tremendous business knowledge. Let's bring them into the church and then we can use those skills to rock this world for Jesus. That's the way churches try to do it sometimes. Oh man, if we just had this worship leader, if we just had this, you know, this pastor, if we just, man, let's, let's, let's hire this new pastor and boy, he's got the look, he's got the words, he's got the charisma. This will really help us to grow. Let's hire him, NBA, you know, NFL. Let's hire him, let's bring him in. That'll change everything, right? So contrary to what the Lord does. So contrary. Do you read your Bibles? How many examples do we have of Gideon and Peter and just all these examples? Moses, we have all these examples. And then we have his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, it says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many, notice that it doesn't say not any. There's an M there. Very important distinction. Not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble are called but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and God has chosen the base things of the world the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence It's not that God never uses powerful people who are extremely talented. He does sometimes. But it's an exception, not the rule. And what I have found is people like that, that are extremely talented, they come into the body of Christ and they're placed in positions of leadership or maybe they get a lot of you know, celebrity status within the church and now they're, you know Kanye is our spokesman for Christianity. Lord, help us. You know? I mean, all these things, right? They get a lot of attention. You know what I see the Lord does often? He breaks them and humbles them. That they are devoid of their strength. All the things that in the world benefited them, their charisma and influence and all those things, he destroys it. And then he builds them back up again. Moses, somebody who was a rich guy that, you know, had lots of power and authority, and he was clearly on a powerful trek in his life, right? And the Lord says, you need 40 years in the wilderness. I think about that often because, man, I, I don't want to—I don't want to say I'm <laughs> Moses, but I'll share my story with you. You know, I mean, when when I came, when I became a believer, the Lord had His hand on my life in a powerful way. Um, there, it seemed like everyone that I talked to was coming to Christ. It seemed like. Every opportunity I had to teach, the Lord was blessing it, and there was fruit. Uh, It seemed like the Lord was raising me up quickly within the churches, and, you know, I'm a chaplain, I'm a deacon, I'm teaching men's breakfasts, I'm, you know, all these things, I'm going and teaching in different churches, and I was a nobody, but the Lord was just kind of raising me up. In our youth ministry, you know, even though there was a time of challenges at first, um, the Lord just really blessed it in a very unusual way. Uh, because we just really committed to just teaching the word we we i like banned you know chubby bunnies and whipped cream i'm like this is not what we're about you know we're about teaching the word here and bring your bibles you know and, and the lord blessed it and there was a great hunger in the kids they wanted it and all this stuff and man when when i would teach within the larger ministry there was always a lot of feedback there was always a lot of you know accolades there was a lot of people like oh man you're so gifted you're so called you're so wonderful and 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 I would always say, ah, I don't listen to that stuff. But you know what? I was. I was listening. And then, you know, you come out and you start a church in Oregon. And for the first six weeks, nobody comes. And then when somebody does finally show up, they don't come back. <laughs> you know? It was a pretty humbling and humiliating experience in my life. And you know i mean i we've had times where i thought oh we're on the precipice of really growing and man we're gonna do it and the seats are full and then COVID, and just boom wiped us out you know and and i just think of man lord when i think of moses i i can relate to him in a way that i couldn't 13 years ago because there comes a point where you go lord i'm not that guy anymore that's I'm not gifted like that anymore. That's just, I don't have that same effect that I used to have. I mean, it seemed like everything I touched was golden. It just, those things were working and people's lives were changing. And I just don't see that anymore. Lord, I can't speak. I stutter. You know, I, I just, I, I see what happens in the mind of somebody who struggles for a long time. And it's not false humility. And I'm not saying this for, you know, I'm not fishing right now, okay? I'm not looking for compliments after the service. I'm just telling you the reality of what happens when you struggle for a long time. All those things that used to be really strong in your life and maybe those areas that you felt secure, they get destroyed. They get destroyed. And you no longer have confidence in your own abilities in those things like you used to. Because you haven't seen the fruit of it for so long compared to what you used to experience. And then some days the Lord comes to you and says, Hey, Moses, now it's time. And he goes, I'm not the right guy. I'm not the man I was. And he says, you're perfect now. Because in your weakness, you'll give me the glory. But there's a humbling process and a painful process broken process that has to occur to get to that place. And the people who are the not many's, they have to go through that. They have to experience that. Or maybe somebody who was not, they knew they weren't a good student, they knew they weren't a good speaker, they knew they you know, were not popular, and they step out into serving the Lord, and they're just astonished that God would use them. They don't have to be broken in the same way. But the not-many's? There's a brokenness that has to occur. And it's a deep brokenness. Not just a, not just a bad year, you know? Not just a bad year on the football team. Like, a deep brokenness. To get them to where they no longer rely on those strengths that they used to rely on and they didn't realize it. God doesn't build the Avengers. The Avengers. You know? He doesn't he doesn't put together the super team to go out and the rock stars, you know, and he doesn't do that. He takes those that the world scratches their head and goes, How does that work? That lady's not a great teacher, she's not that beautiful, but yet man, look at all these things that God's doing through her life and wow, she's really having a profound effect how does that work with that guy? Look at him. He probably sat alone at his lunch table his entire youth, you know? How does he affect all of these people? It doesn't make sense. God says, those are the type of people I use. Because they will not steal my glory. They won't take credit for this. They really, really, really know But it's the Lord. It's the Lord who did this. It's not me. Because I'm not capable of this. They know it. The problem is, nobody wants to be that person. (laughs) Nobody wants to be that person. (laughs) Nobody wants to to feel that way about themselves. We're told, you know, you need more self-esteem. You need, you know, if you believe it, you can achieve it. You know I mean? Just all this stuff, right? Nobody wants to get to that doubt and that questioning of their own abilities and their calling and nobody wants to go through those things. But God says, that's that's how I build you up. That's how I make you qualified for how I want to use your life. We have to go through this. Now check out verse 10 though. He tells this little church. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Did you get that very first part in verse, verse 10? Because you have kept my command to persevere. He didn't say, because you persevered. He says, because you have kept my command to persevere. To persevere. It speaks of a man or a woman who has not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to faith and piety, even by the greatest of trials and sufferings. I hesitate to use this example because I don't know anything about him besides what I've seen recently. But that Ukrainian president, I really respect his perseverance a lot. It's a model for leadership to see how he is doing what has to be done for that country and not backing down under immense pressures, and difficulties. Like I said, I don't know anything else about him. But I look at that and I go, that's the type of man that I would follow. That's the type of man that I know really means what he says. That's a person who perseveres. And just like we look at a person like that, a human example... Christians are supposed to be those type of examples to the world. See, because in this life you will have tribulation. Jesus didn't hide the details. That was not in the small print of the contract. He was loud about it. He was letting us know, in this life you will have all kinds of problems. Various problems, trials and difficulties, all kinds of different levels. You're going to have problems in this life. But he tells you, I command you to persevere. I'm not asking you to persevere. I'm not encouraging you to persevere. I'm commanding you to persevere. There's a time where we all feel like giving up. There's a time where we all are going through something so difficult that we feel like, I can't go on. And I just think of, I think of that mom or dad that in that situation gets the face of their child and holds it right in their hand and says, you will do this. You don't have a choice. And I feel like in suffering, there's a time where the Lord says, you will persevere. I'm commanding you to do it. You know why? Because when you persevere, the world looks at you. And says, how are you doing it? How are you making it? How are you holding it all together? Because if I were in that circumstance, if that happened to me or my family or my loved ones, I'd, be, I'd check out. I'd be done. Right now, more than ever, we need Christians that will persevere. We need people that will stay in the fight and fight the good fight. Not cave into the Pressures and the persecutions or the distractions of this world but people that will stand and endure and persevere because they need to see an example of that and again just like that Ukrainian president right now he stands out like a shining light in the midst of cowards among those who lead nations this little powerless nation and he's persevering and he's inspiring people to persevere even at the risk of losing their lives. We're called to be those type of people. We're called to be those type of people. Persevere in the midst of the difficulty of marriage. Persevere in the midst of health issues. Persevere in the midst of financial loss. Persevere in the midst of all of these things because the world is watching you. And oftentimes this will distinguish the difference between a life with Christ and a life without Christ. And people will see the difference through your perseverance. This little church that he's speaking to persevered. I think about all the things that we may have to re- we may have to persevere through here in short order. I'm not one of the guys that, you know, is, you know, we're not going to go crazy on this. But I'm looking at some of the things that are happening in the world right now. And I'm like, things could get real nasty real quick. All it takes is one bad decision from one leader. That's all it takes. And these are flawed people. And some of them are flat out insane. That are in positions to make these decisions. And things can change very Very quickly for the United States of America. Very quickly. I think of Matthew as Jesus was talking about these things, Matthew twenty-four, where in verse three it says, While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus replied to them. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. I think we just read a list of all the different things where people are being deceived about who Jesus is. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, because these things must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom there will be famines and earthquakes in various places all of these I'm sorry all of these events are the beginning of labor pains Then he goes on to say They will hand over they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you You will be hated by all, by all nations, because of my names. Then many will fall away, betray one another, and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will multiply. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures, notice the word, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This good news of the kingdom of God, will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I don't mean to do an end time study here today, but as I've said, I think we can look at this list of things and we can go check, 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 check. Look at all the wars and rumors of wars that are ramping up right now. This is not just about Russia and Ukraine. I hope you understand this. This could easily spiral out of control, easily. We are already seeing that China and Taiwan could happen any moment where they make their move. North Korea and South Korea... Iran, Israel, and who knows how many other nations. There's a lot of things happening right at this moment. Right at this moment. When it speaks of all of these events are, beginning, are the beginning of labor pains. Remember, labor, if you've ever been involved with either having a child or being with somebody who has had a child, it starts slowly And works up in frequency and intensity. And I think right now we're starting to see increased frequency and intensity of these things. These things have existed forever. They had wars going on when the Bible was being written. These things have been going on forever. But we're looking at the culmination of all the different things that are happening. And we're saying lawlessness Is increasing in frequency and intensity, not just in the United States, in the whole world. Love growing cold is increasing in frequency and intensity. Persecution is on the rise against Christianity in frequency and intensity. These things are happening, and we can look at it and say, we see the trajectory of these things, and it's rising. That's why verse 13 is so important. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is not saying that you will earn your salvation by making it through these things. It is saying the one who is saved will endure. If you're saved, you're going to endure. It's just going to happen. You will endure. You will persevere. And again, I some of this I believe is talking about after the second coming too as well. but um, Or during the tribulation period, I should say. So what does he promise to those in the letter to Philadelphia who persevere? He says, because in verse 10, you have kept my command to persevere. I, will also, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have, that no one may take your crown. I believe this is a direct promise to the church about the rapture. I really believe that. And I will build that up as we go through Revelation as to why I believe these things. But I believe this is an indication that he's saying, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. This is not localized. This is not just in their little Asia Minor area. This is the whole world is going to go through something cataclysmic. It's going to be an earth crisis. A world crisis. And he says, I will keep you from that hour. I will keep you. I believe that's pointing again to the rapture. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have. Not your, not your stuff. Hold fast to the truth. That no one may take your crown. I believe all those things, again, are speaking about eternity and the new Jerusalem and the things that will come, which, again, we will develop more as we get to it in Revelation. Notice, though, that like Smyrna, who was also suffering greatly, he does not promise relief. He does not say that I will take away your suffering. Instead, he tells them to persevere, hold fast, and overcome. Guys, the truth is, I don't know how long the Lord is going to patiently wait for those to repent that he has called to repentance. I don't know how long. But what I'm pretty certain of is that we are living in the Philadelphian church age. I think we can look at this as an age and say, I see these things happening and not just because you attend a small church, it's, it's not just that reason that we identify with what's being said here. It's in the sense that even though there are some major churches, I mean, there are big churches out there, and there are some that are very, very good big churches, but there are a lot that are a mile wide and an inch deep. Okay? Uh, they have a large footprint, but they're not necessarily preparing people through truth of what the Word of God says. They're focusing on things that entertain people or just encourage people, and that's the main emphasis of their ministries, and people are not prepared for difficulties if that were to occur, or I should say when it occurs. And I believe that that's why the Philadelphian church is a picture of the church as a whole across the world right now. People are like, no, there's mega churches, more mega churches than any time in history. Yes, there are. But he says, I see you have little strength. You have little strength. You're big, you boast, you're a machine. You're a machine. Look at the building, look at the things you can afford, look at all these things. You're you're powerful in that regards, the world looks at it. But I look into your hearts and I say, Oh, you're weak. You have a little strength. Make no mistake, though, the Lord has placed an open door before us. It doesn't matter if it's a little church like this, it doesn't matter if it's a bigger church, it doesn't matter what it is. We have an open door that the Lord has placed before us right now in this generation. And no one can shut it. The Lord has opened the door because time is short. We need to make sure that when he opens the door, we walk through it. The only question is, has the Lord opened the door, or am I trying to ram a door open that he has closed? Because it's him who opens doors, it's him who closes doors. Ultimately, Jesus does have an open door policy. And his open door policy is if I opened it, nobody will close it. And I believe we live in a generation that we need to take that seriously. And I believe more so than ever right now. And I understand. There was pastors teaching these things at the beginnings of World War I, at the beginning of World War II, at the beginning of, you know, desert storm. I, I understand. All I'm telling you is this is the world we're living in right now. And right now, things are ramping up in intensity and frequency, and the ability to destroy the world exists like it never has before. The capabilities of destruction are higher than they've ever been. And we live in this generation. So we must persevere, and we must walk through the door that he has opened. This is the door he's opened. Got to walk through it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that, you know, again, with all the things that are happening and your timing is perfect, Lord, here we are, this little church, Lord, with very little strength. And yet, you work things out to where in your divine providence we come through a study like this, right at this timing, just reminding us. But you are the one who opens doors. You are the one who closes doors. You are the one who is in charge of everything that's going on in this world. No matter how bad it is, you are still fully capable of accomplishing your plan. Lord, help us to be faithful, to persevere in the midst of difficulties. And there are great difficulties within this ministry right now, great challenges for many of our families right now. Lord, would you please strengthen us Strengthen the hearts of your people. Help us to understand, Lord, that right now is the time to persevere and a time for endurance. I pray that you would just help us, Lord, to be those shining examples in the midst of a world that doesn't see courageous people anymore in their faith. And not going out and doing weird things to draw attention to ourselves, but just being courageous in the midst of difficulties. That we would inspire people to want to follow you themselves because there is an inner strength and peace and joy that we have that they know they can't manufacture. Would you help us, Lord, to properly display that? I thank you, Father, for the good things that you're doing in all of our lives and I just pray that you continue to use us, Lord, and help us to walk through the doors that you have opened for whatever you have called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.